All right, so uh, very quickly, uh, I want to review and just kind of jump in by reading through this pretty extensive passage in Luke 24. You can follow along in your Bibles or your handout. It's listed there as well. You have your Bible app. Go for that. Either one, whatever works best. But I want not, I'm not going to go back and cover the ground and explain it through. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus has just happened. That's the context. But many of the disciples, uh, well, are unconvinced. Some of the women have come back with a testimony or a, some type of uh, communication. They've been suggesting that Jesus is alive. And they had this kind of interaction. We can read about it right now, and then we'll pick up and move along. It says, in returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women this group of women who had gone down to care for the dead body of Jesus and anoint it and bury it properly. Uh, when they got there, the stone had been rolled away. They had this interaction with, with what seemed like something from heaven. And they went and told the disciples that Jesus, his body was gone and he was alive. That's, that was the message. But look what it says in verse 11. But these words seemed to them, to the disciples, the apostles, the 12 and the others who were there, seemed to them like an idle tale, like you're just making this up because you want to believe it. And it says emphatically at the end of verse, verse 11 there, they did not believe them. So there was no, <laughs> it was no question that nobody believed Jesus was alive. The disciples did not believe it. Now, jumping to verse 13, it says, that very day, two of them, the them, by the way, is part of the rest that's referred to in verse 9. Do you see that? says the disciples and the rest. There was this larger gathering of people who followed Jesus. I mean, we know the, name of the names of the disciples, the, the, male, the male small group that Jesus had, but we also know many of the women who were also involved and were committed followers of Jesus. What we don't know is this large group of other followers who, although their names are never mentioned, um, they, had, they had believed in Jesus and they had followed him and they were part of a very, in a sense, a small community. They were like a small church that had followed Jesus with, with sincere devotion. And this is two of those people that are referred to in that ninth verse are now, we are told, making their way out of Jerusalem. While all this is going on, they're on their way to a village, a village, a town called Emmaus. And so even though we call this series incognito, and we'll see why in a moment, it really is a series that has to do with also this incident that occurs on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24. This amazing exchange that occurs. It's wonderful. It says, that, oh, and just from a map standpoint, putting it into context geographically, I mean, Jerusalem's obviously still there today. It can be seen in the places that we talk about all the time are real places. Emmaus was a village about seven miles away. You can see the direction. You head west. Small, though. Nothing significant. The road to it was not a well-traveled one. I think the imagery that they pick up here um, and the way they designed it, the set as well, sort of leads us down this road. You get that sense of remoteness. You get the idea that someone could be traveling together. Two friends could be talking for a long time. They had a lot of time. Along the way, there might be a stop every now and then where someone could get a refreshment, rest, even stay overnight. Periodically, you would see other people connecting, like would be the case on any trail, really, where, where a, a person might come by or one person might pull over and, and rest and another one would keep going. There were travelers, but it wasn't well-traveled. It was more remote. It says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. 
And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. During their journey, they talked as friends do. They talked about what had transpired. They were actually, they were actually recovering from a deep trauma. It would be as if you had a close friend. Because they had left, it seems, while all this was going on, and they had chosen to leave Jerusalem. And so they were past the city limits. They were on their way. And they had time to talk. They had time to engage one another in conversation. And they were sharing around and trying to explore together, work through what had happened. I mean, you got to understand that it was just days earlier where it seemed like everything that they had hoped for was about to, to just come to pass. Jesus was welcomed in, but a week before with people clamoring in the streets, calling him the coming Messiah that they believed he was. They were waving these things, palms, and, and crying out, the scriptures said would happen with Messiah. They were crying out, Hosanna, or Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus engaged the moment, rode on a donkey into the town. They understood that too as a fulfillment of a prophecy about Messiah. Everybody felt like this is the moment. Jesus is going to unveil himself. Everything that, that we've been talking about, hoping for, believing for, poured our life into for these last three years is about to happen. And then the thing turned completely upside down. It went berserk. It was crazy. Before they knew it, everything had changed. The last thing they saw was, was Jesus hanging like a, a ghastly crimson silhouette on a Roman cross with a gray sky. And the man that they saw, if you would have seen him, didn't look anything like the man they knew. He had been their teacher. He had been their mentor. He had been their master and Lord. His words had had been the words of God, his, his hands had touched people and healed them. And then to watch what happened to him, it was awful. It was awful, right? It was, it's just, and they're talking about this, about how their world had crumbled. Because not only was Jesus, Jesus, as much as they had loved him, proven to be what they thought he wasn't, right? So th they not only lost Jesus physically, and his presence in their lives, but they lost him in a way that was connected to their dreams and their hopes. So as they're walking down that road, they're, they're walking down as like a people with broken dreams, right? That's part of what's happening here. We move, we move forward. And one of the things I realized as I was thinking about it, because they were, I think, if you, I think we understand this, they were trying to process through their loss. They lost something. They lost a person who meant something to them. And, and I don't know if, if, if we can relate to this, but I think most of us can. And I'll just, I just want to put this up. I don't think it's profound, but I think it's real. That part of the pain of living has to do with loss. In life, we're going to lose things. And maybe we're younger here and we haven't lost a lot. Or maybe we're younger here and we've lost a lot already. Maybe we've experienced pain. But if we live, I can tell you this, if we live long enough, we're going to experience a loss of things. We're going to lose our youth, for one. Uh, and then, in some cases, at different times in our lives, if we live long, or along the way of life, certain things we've always taken for granted about our health, certain capacities we've always enjoyed, we're going to have to wrestle with losing those, too. And that's not easy. It's easier, I suppose, in, a, in an age like ours than it was maybe in previous generations, but it's not easy. Others of us, we may lose people we love. We have. And it's hard to, to deal with that. 
Some of us who have been pursuing something, we have a dream that we've been pursuing, a career pursuit, maybe a business, maybe something that we were aspiring to, and it has evaporated, it, it, it crumbled, it's gone. And that's a loss to us. For other, others of us, it can have to do with maybe relationships, maybe, maybe you know, when relationships die, it can be utterly devastating. And I'm not just talking about ones that we might call romantic, I'm talking about also friendships. Um, uh, relation, family fishers. I mean, there's, when relationships die, it, it's hard to lose those things. These are losses in life. People, again, I go back to people we love, uh, you know, they leave. Sometimes they die. And we, and we can't recover that. Those are losses. They were wrestling through a loss. That's really important. Because I want us to think about, when we, about how the Lord can teach us and help us when we experience inevitable losses in our lives or seasons of loss. You know, one of my um, favorite authors in terms of reflectiveness and life, life examination is a Christian writer named Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen, who, is this, who was this gentle and introspective theologian, he wrote about loss. And he was talking about how losses can settle into our hearts and minds. And he shared about different kinds of losses. And I, I asked if they could just put it up. He, he talked about the loss of intimacy through separation. He talked about the loss of safety through violence. He, he talked about how um, it's even possible for us to lose our innocence through abuse or how we lose friends through betrayal or how we can experience the loss of love through abandonment, right? So he was really digging into that. And I think, oh, and when you see that, those are all real things, deep, real things. And anybody want to, there might be some of this that we, we deeply relate to. I want to I suggest something. Jesus at the cross experienced every one of these losses. If you think about it for a moment, at a relational level, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Uh, he had invested into Judas. He loved him. I think there's some kind of perverse love that when he betrays him, he kisses him on the cheek. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, the, and, and, and friend Jesus says, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Right? It was it, it, something about that, the hurt, the wound. Uh, even at the table when he says to him, what, that, what you're about to do, go and do. There's a deep wound at a relational level. We tend to think of it as only just you know, very clean, black and white. But at a human level, Jesus was affected by this. He felt betrayal at the deepest levels. On top of that with Peter, some of us know, are aware of that as well. He was his most trusted disciple, the recognized leader of his team, the one who had at times shown amazing understanding and boldness and, and has said he would die for Jesus. And the interesting thing is when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, and even though it was dark, that Peter actually did take out his sword and he, he was going to, he was prepared to fight. And he, didn't, he wasn't just passive in it, he did it. If it wasn't for Jesus, the whole thing would have melted down. But the point being is that Peter was willing to die for the Lord in that moment. But once the adrenaline came down, it showed the fissures in his character. 
And he, as, the, as things unraveled with Jesus, he was not up to the task. And eventually he's put into a place where he's asked a question. And some of us know that what happens, he, he, he's not at this point, his world has been turned upside down and he's not understanding and his weakness shows up like we all have them. The right buttons are pushed. And Peter denies Jesus, not once, not twice, three times, emphatically breaking with him. And when it, there's this powerful moment where Jesus sees him as he's being taken, and it's like it just breaks Peter in pieces. But Jesus was hurt too. Like, I, told, I, I know you, Simon Peter. He felt, he felt that pain. Judas, Peter, on the cross, Jesus, you think about on the seven recorded sayings, what, what is the second or last? My God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? Feels the distance from the Father as he bears the weight of lost humanity. He pays the price that we could never pay. He feels the separation, the abandonment. Think about it. Why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? He feels it. Betrayal, abandonment from people who should have, those who should have loved him better. Then on top of it, the other things that are referred to there but right now when he talks about, about the, the violence and abuse, right? The worst part, I mean, he, he, we know what happens to Jesus. I mean, it was awful. The physical abuse that he receives, the violence that was placed upon him, right, is stunning. The ugliness of humanity at its most base level that we see at times and it makes us recoil where we go, well, how can that come out of a human being to one, someone else? He experiences the worst of it. My point is he experienced everything. He understood every one of those losses. He experienced every one of them. God is not just talking to us from a distance. He has entered into the human experience and he understands suffering and brokenness at a very profound level. And he didn't have to do it. He chose to let it happen. There's something about that. Keep that in mind as we move forward here. Let's look at it together. It says that, um, and again, when we go back to the verse here, I, as I look at it, I, I see these two friends talking, right? And what they're doing is they're lingering in their loss. They're despairing. They're disheartened. But I think you can also see this too. I, I want us to understand it. That as they're talking about their loss, they're blessed before Jesus ever shows up. And you say, well, how are they blessed? I will say that they're blessed because they had one another. And that's a huge blessing. Because one another is no small thing. It really isn't. I, I asked them to put this up. To have a friend or two with whom we can honestly share our loss. You think about this for a moment. With whom we can honestly share our loss is to be blessed. And it has been said, shared pain is half the pain. And shared joy, twice the joy. There's something powerful about that. There's something about the freedom to be vulnerable and honest and to share our heart in our pain and to be able to do that authentically without fear is a blessing. And it's one of the ways in which, in which that pain is reduced in our life, right? And then the same thing with the joy, right? To be able to share it with, one, with someone. It makes it even more so. Sometimes uh, good conversation, sometimes quality conversation is excellent medicine for a melancholy spirit. Remember that. And companionship, good companionship, friendship, honest and true, 
is often God's method for comforting a mourning or a grieving soul. In times of loss, we would do well to guard ourselves from isolation. We talked about that. There is a time to be alone. Jesus modeled it. No question there is. There are some things that God can only do in our lives when we are willing to be alone, actually. Some of, some of us need to be able to carve out time. Jesus modeled it just to be able to think long thoughts and pray and look inside of our heart. Some of us are afraid of that. And so we always have to have something. There are times where it's good to be alone. But if you can hear me on this one, um, times, in times of great loss or sadness, those times are not one of them. It is not good to be alone in times of sadness and loss. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, while they, and so they traveled and they talked and they were there for one another. And while they were talking and discussing, verse 15, Jesus himself, what, drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And are there not times when Jesus is among us and we did not know it? What follows is this amazing, amusing, tender, and if I may say it, even a little bit playful. But what I noted here is that Jesus is post-resurrection, and this is worth noting, because it seems that after Jesus rose from the dead, his body, though the same, was also different. And many people have discussed this about what happens after, because Jesus before, uh, and he's recognized after he ri is risen, he can be recognized I mean, Thomas is able to actually touch his body, so feel his wounds, right? So there, Jesus is recognizable, but he also can be unrecognizable. And it seems that the law of time and space that used to apply don't apply anymore in this resurrected body. And that has a lot of implications for us. I'm no physicist, but I will suggest that the laws of physics of movement and time are very different on the other side of death in Christ. And certainly Jesus is modeling this as he engages. Because again, what we're being told here is they were talking and discussing and Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. And so I kind of see this, these two walking down a road, not unlike something like that, where they're talking with each other and they're engaging in that conversation. And it's sad, honestly, it is. And as they're talking about what could have been, what should have been, why did it happen? Why did God allow all the things that people talk about when you experience deep traumatic loss in the middle of that conversation before they realize that they're being joined by somebody? He's a stranger. Who is this? They, what are you, they, may, they didn't even see him coming, right? They're having this conversation with one another. Maybe they thought to one, for a moment, well, it's because we were just so focused on each other that we didn't notice him. But before they saw it, they see this other person, this other stranger, this traveler on the same road coming from behind, and it looks like he's going to pass, and so maybe they just kind of take a glance, make sure there's no trouble here, and then they just kind of keep their conversation going, but he does something. He interrupts them. Look what happens. Look what it says. It says, the stranger, and he said to them, what is this? Okay, for one thing, he's, he's looking like he's going to pass, but, but he said to them, what is, this conversa hey, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, it's like, well, all of a sudden, they have this stranger who they don't recognize coming up and saying, while they're in the middle of this conversation, saying, excuse me, um, you know, I've got a question for you about what you guys are talking about. You look pretty intense right now, 
right? And it's almost like, um, excuse me, we're having a conversation right now. Just keep right on going there, right? The, the, you can see what happens, right? It says, then he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Man, you look so, you look so beaten. You look so sad. And then one of them, now we know a name, Cleopas. One of them named Cleopas answers him with, by the way, what has to be one of the most ironic statements of all time. For he says to this stranger who has inserted himself out of nowhere into the middle of a conversation that they were having with each other. Are you serious? (laughs) Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem? Because that's where you came from, evidently. Who has no idea about the things that have been going on? Do you have any idea what's been happening? How can you not know? That is ironic. <laughs> and what also follows is pretty interesting, too. Because he says to them, which I go, Jesus, what are you doing here? He says, no, I have no idea. What things are you talking about? <laughs> and then Cleopas gets very serious. I'm talking about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I'm talking about, look what it says here, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. That's who we're talking about, before the people. And you know what happened? How our chief priests and our rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. He was a good man. No, he was a great man. No, I tell you, he was a prophet. And our religious leaders did what they always do to the prophets, what they've always done to the prophets. They, they had him killed. That's what they did. They... Not with their own hands. No, they didn't do it with their own hands. I tell you that. No, they, but they condemned him. They sentenced him. They conspired to have him crucified. And then the Romans, the Romans, they did their work. You know how they do it. Beat him up. Unrecognizable. Before he even got hammered on the cross, it was a bloody mess. It's awful. And then his intensity drops. And we had hoped, you see it, you see it, you see it? Verse 21, you hear it, you can hear it. Dashed hope. We, we had hoped he was the one. We had hoped he was the one. We did, we did. We believed he was the one to redeem Israel. We believed he was the promised one. We believed he was Messiah. We, we, had, we, had, we, had, we, we had believed that he was the one who had set us free. And you know, and, and the truth is, it's actually been three days since this happened. Yeah, it's the third day since it happened. And again, they only saw on the cross failure. Their love for him remained, no question. He was, but their uh, hope was confidence in his ability to do what they thought he was going to do. That was gone. It was vanquished. Verse 22, he goes on to say, Cleopas says, Moreover, there were these women in our company, and they amazed us. They kind of caught our interest. They had this story that somehow, uh, well, they were at the tomb early in the morning, verse 23, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen this, like, vision from angels, but, um, you know, they said he was alive. And some of us, some of those who were with us, they went back to the tomb to see, but but you know what? They, They didn't find his body. This is gone, Right? So it was true. There's some controversy, but it has nothing to do. They didn't see him. We saw him. And what we saw, yeah. Now, you know what they get next from this stranger? They get two things. A rebuke and a Bible study. All right? 
And he said to them, and again, they don't know it's Jesus. This guy who meets, who somehow caught up with them as they're talking, a fast-paced traveler on the road. And he says to them, oh, you foolish ones. And you are slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. You're so close and yet you're not seeing. You're not seeing what is right in front of you. And then, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Don't you remember the scriptures clearly tell us about a suffering Messiah? Haven't you read Isaiah? Haven't you read the scriptures? Come on. It teaches us that before the glory, he was going to suffer. And then he gives them the Bible study. And man, what a Bible study it was. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, through the law, first five books, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. That's the Old Testament. Jesus takes them to walk through the Old Testament. A quick tour. Boom, 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 boom. You see this here? This said about me. This was saying this about the suffering Messiah. This was saying this about the suffering Messiah. Remember back in Genesis, the first time blood was shed and a covering was given. Remember in Isaiah, the brokenness, the stripes. I mean, he went through the whole thing, right? They still know who he is. Oh, and by the way, later on, and we'll get to this next week or the one after. I can't remember which one. Verse 32, this is what it says their reaction was. It says, they, this is what they're going to say later. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us, opened to us the scriptures? You know what they had a bad case of? Holy heartburn. That's what they had. Yeah, holy heartburn. And that's what happens sometimes when God's word hits us inside. I've had it happen. My heart burns within me. Yeah. Oh, a couple things just want to submit. It's good for us to remember. I'm coming back full circle here that the Lord will meet us in our painful places, you guys. And he will join us in our loss. That's part of what this is teaching us. I love that. He who was abandoned will not abandon us. And even when we are faltering in faith, he abides faithful. Into the painful places he will come. Into the broken places he will come. Into the questioning, despairing places he will come. And remember, these were believers who were trying to make sense of what had happened and you know, I, I was thinking about it because it, it reminded me that uh, I was thinking, you know what happens when you do a message like this? It drives you back a little bit into your own self if you do it right. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about loss and I was thinking about the losses of life and then I found myself thinking about my own losses in life. And I thought, well, what would be my three greatest losses in life? And I think, I think I identified, at least, I know I, I, the first one I know for sure. It happened when I was, it happened when I was 12 years old. My brother and I watched our mom and dad split apart. And then uh, they got divorced. And that was the only home I had ever known. It, it probably was, obviously stuff was going on, I just didn't know it, not to that level. And then I remember because, I remember, uh, remember not having my dad. And so basically the rest of, and I've shared this before, it's not necessarily news anymore. I remember though, because my dad goes AWOL. 
And he never in my life really, that point on, just gone. And I remember how I would feel because there was other, other, other guys that I was with and played sports and stuff and just never had my dad and my mom was working. So just that's the way it was. And, you know, I think about that and I thought about, wow, how did that hit me, right? That was a loss. Like my family died. Now, I know a lot of us have had that experience. But it's like my dad just disappears, essentially. Emotionally wounded, devastated man who never recovers really fully. It took me a long time. I don't think I ever fully processed what that did to me at a relational level because I just kind of moved on and that was the way life was and I don't need you anyway. Till the Lord started getting into my heart a little bit about dealing with some of the anger in there and, and be able to forgive him. And that was, and I said, Lord, just take my anger away. Just take my anger away. And then the Lord helped me. You know, at the end, I was able to pray with my dad before he died. We had that moment. I say that because that was a loss to me. I don't think I really understood that loss, although it's informed my life, just like all of our losses at profound levels do. Another loss that occurred to me was when I was 25. And we've, I've shared this before. Again, I'm not trying to make this all about me. I'm just sharing with my own losses as I sat with this message and how the Lord enters into these losses. I didn't really see the Lord enter into my loss when I was 12. It wasn't until years later that I welcomed into that wound that I didn't even know I really had. But when I was 25, just getting ready, I had just been told that I was going to be the pastor of this church. It was a small church, a church that my grandfather had founded in a house as he drove his muni bus, part-time pastor. That was how it was when I was growing up. But he filled a gap for me, my grandfather. My father's father became a father to me in the faith, taught me how to love God and pray. Did. God, I wasn't thinking that way. I don't know why. See, that can happen. That can happen out of nowhere. You hit the right chord, boom, it goes, right? It just hits you. So I remember him when he was, I remember when I was 25 and, he, and he, he's dying, right? And so six months into this, he, he leaves. I mean, he dies. He goes to be with Jesus. I'll do this funeral right here. And I didn't even know how to process that through. It was like the Lord helped me, my mentor, my, the one who's filled my gap, my father of the faith, everything. He's gone. How am I going to do this? Uh, I, it, was a, it was a loss. It was a loss at a number of levels. But at the same time, like a lot of you who've had losses, you don't sometimes even have time to grieve properly. You have to move on. You can't even stop to really grieve it out because you have weight on you and you've got to keep going. And I think the Lord sort of helped me through that as well, right? I found him in that place. It was one of the times where, as I went on, I, I've, I became grateful for the chance, what I had, not just for sad over what I lost. And then you say, well, what is the third one? Because those are two pretty, you know, those are things like, for me personally, actually, this is going to sound like out of left field, but one of the great seasons of loss, the third one was a season of loss. And I wanted to point this out. We can go through a season where it's a season of loss. It's not just one thing. It's a series of things that hit us in a period of time that is so short that as, a, as it compounds, it begins to overwhelm us with a sense of loss. And I, I, I really, and in my case, it happened about three, a little over three years ago, right before I had to go on that medical sabbatical, a number of things hit me as, at a loss level, heading right into midlife. Um, my grandmother, I have people who I love dying, uh, 
the sense of my own identity, of a lot of things, my body, I lost my voice, I was just losing things everywhere. Someone asked me what's going on, I said, I'm losing stuff. I'm afraid I'm losing stuff. And I get away. That, that season of loss, here's what I want to say, was profound for me, and I shared about this before, and I don't know how to turn it, but God really met me out of the broken places, God brought life. Mm. Out of the cross comes resurrection. It doesn't mean that every situation comes back to life. Sometimes it changes. But in every situation, he is present and willing to teach us things about ourselves, about who he is, about his love for us. And this is the last thing I'll submit. And it really means something to me. I asked them if they could put it up, that final point there, that final thought. Because he is ever present with us, you guys. Even when we are foolish, do you see that? And slow of heart to believe, slow to believe, he works with us. Please see that. Um, I know that there are times when, in seasons of loss, we become foolish. Because we want to deal with that hurt. And sometimes in the place of loss and struggle, we become self-destructive. Because we're trying to address that loss. And the Lord works with us even there. A lot of times in those places of loss, we are having a hard time believing God's goodness. He still works with us there. He works us through it, if we'll let him. He, he was with me, and I knew it not. And one of the things I found personally at my own level is that God shows up in ways, sometimes it's through the wrestling of it and the working through it that the real depth starts to occur and change occurs, and God brings out of the, out of the bad that he didn't bring. He brings out of that good. So we call it redemptive. That's what the cross is all about. So we say the cross is redemptive. It means death isn't the final word. God's life is that he can bring out of any situation, God can bring something good. If I walk with him and let him walk with me, he can do amazing things. And again, I'm profoundly amazed at his gentleness, his goodness, and his love. Because the Lord will not abandon us. Even when we're pushing him away, he will not abandon us. Such is his love. And don't ever, please, underestimate his ability for resurrection. Maybe not the same, but a wonderful gift of life will come. It's what he does. He heals wounds, turns them into scars, and opens up new things. That's his way. Let's pray. So Lord, I, I am overwhelmed and thankful and grateful for your goodness and your love and your life. I ask that as we finish this time together that people will leave, that we would leave stronger, more encouraged, less afraid of things that sometimes look like loss and devastation. It's true, that's exactly what they may be, but your ability to come into those places and to change them and turn them and to bring life into them, your ability to heal us and deepen us and work in us, Lord. Let us not underestimate your capacity to do that. You who experienced ultimate loss, you understand our loss. You, own, you know what hurt is. You know what wounding is. And yet, you work with us. You love us. You're patient with us. I thank you. What a wonderful, amazing, faithful Lord you are. How much we love you, Lord. We are overwhelmed by it. We ask for your blessing. Bless this closing time of our giving. Bless this closing song. May we who love you honor you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, God.